0: But uh, we are in Acts 17 tonight, so if you're not already there, please turn there or go there if you don't have something in front of you that has pages. Um, But Acts 17 is where we're at, and we're going to look at this now. We're going to be starting at uh, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, that's his traveling companions, while he was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Sounds like a good time, right? Let's pray. Jesus, we are gathered now, and we are looking into your word, and we ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would speak to us and that you would teach us. We ask God that you would find in us receptive hearts to be convicted, to be challenged. Um, We pray, Lord, that we would be encouraged as well. We recognize that uh, your word is such an incredible gift to us and it's in your word that you reveal yourself and you are calling us to a life that you've created for us, a life that you've given us, and so, Jesus, now that as we as we take this time now, we pray that it would be time well spent communing with you. And Lord, I just want to pray for myself for a second, that you would just help me to articulate these biblical truths, Lord. We just uh, we ask for your Holy Spirit to minister in this gathering. In your name we pray, amen. So some of you uh, know that uh, I have had some heart complications and health issues over the years, and. And um, uh, several years ago, there was a situation where I was driving up the street and I saw a car on the side of the road and they had apparently run out of gas. And so being the wonderful person that I am, I pulled over and uh, I wanted to see if I could help them. So I, we figure out that it's not a you know, mechanical issue, but they just ran out of gas and they were one block away from the gas station. So I like, okay, well, I, I can help you out. So I was pushing their car the length of a block. And as I'm pushing the car, of course, there's the upper body resistance, the lower body resistance, and I'm pushing the car. And the further I go, I start to not feel so hot. And I'm getting closer and closer to the gas station. I could sort of see it you know, right there, but it seemed like so far away because I was not doing good. And I get into the middle of the intersection because the gas station was just on the other side of the intersection. And I thought, I am not gonna make it across this street. So I just gave the car one more last shove as hard as I could. And I don't even know what happened to the car, but I was just focused on trying to get across the street. And I was doing one of these zombie deals, trying to get across the street. And uh, I, you know, and then, you know, all of a sudden, this bus comes flying into the intersection. I'm kidding. That didn't really happen. (laughs) Just making sure you're listening. (laughs) No, but I I barely make it across the street. And I make it to the sidewalk on the far side by the gas station, and I just collapse. And what happened was my heart stopped. And I was in rough shape. And I laid there on the sidewalk, actually just beside, on this little grassy patch next to the sidewalk for an hour, desperate for someone to help me. And nobody did. And I'm laying there. And in that state, when you're kind of half in and half out, uh, I don't know if you've ever experienced anything like that, but your senses get heightened and you're super aware. You hear everything. I could hear the bus pulling up at the bus stop right there. I could hear cars pulling into the gas station. I could hear them, uh, you know, flip the, the lever on the, on the gas pumps. I could hear the little bell that was on the door of the gas station where people would go in to pay or use the convenience store or whatever. I could hear all of that but I was just completely out of it. And at one point, someone yelled at me. I heard the little bell of the door open on, on the, at the gas station, and someone yelled out, hey, buddy, you okay over there? And of course, I couldn't respond, and that was the end of that. Um, they didn't bother to come over and check up on me or anything like this. Um, anyway, I was just desperate for someone to do something, someone to, like, to come and help me out. And then finally, uh, uh, the, a lady pulled up into the gas station uh, and she didn't pull up to the pump. She just pulled up on the side. You know how sometimes they have like one or two parking spots there. And she pulled up on the side, and she gets out of the car, and I remember kind of looking up at her, and she looks at me, and she was just like, you know, what was going on here? Because I was just kind of sprawled out. And she, at first, was very hesitant, but then I could see that she was concerned and started taking little baby steps towards me. And I had... When I was not, you know, when I was going out, I had grabbed, I had, I used to wear a, maybe I should still wear a medical alert tag, and I was holding it in my hand, and I had it out like this, and she saw it. And so she very carefully came over, and she grabbed it, and she flipped it over, and she read it, and then she cursed, and then she called 911. <laughs> and help was on the way, and I lived happily ever after. But... I say all that to say that sometimes when we're in situations like that, there's this human nature where we don't want to get involved in things. And we sort of sometimes have this attitude that somebody else is going to do it. And we recognize that something might be a good cause and might be a worthy thing to engage in, but we're sort of leaving it to everybody else because sooner or later, someone's going to come along and do that thing that maybe we have the power and the opportunity to be involved in, to help out in, but I'm just going to, I'm not going to get involved. That's sometimes, how we are as it relates to mission. As Christians, we get the whole concept that, you know, we've been given this great commission, Jesus commissioned his followers to, in a nutshell, reach people, make disciples, and we get it, yeah, 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 I get it. We nod in agreement and we, we understand that, but that's not always something that we see worked out in our lives, is it? And there are various reasons why that might be the case. I think sometimes there's a sense that, well, I'm not going to share Jesus with this person because you know, ultimately someone else will probably come along this person's path and they'll have the opportunity to, to share Jesus. And this, pro- this guy is probably not going to go to hell just because I didn't share Jesus with him. And so we sort of rationalize and, and sort of make excuses about why we don't take the initiative, why, why we don't take the opportunity, why we don't do something and say something to people as it relates to reaching people for Jesus. And that's sometimes how it is with us. And we can sort of justify it by sort of rationalizing it away. And that's part of what keeps us from mission. Another thing that keeps us from mission is sometimes, and when I say mission, I'm talking about reaching people for Jesus, sharing the gospel with people. Another thing that keeps us is sometimes, quite honestly, it's not a fear thing, it's not a hesitancy, it's not a I'm gonna let somebody else do it thing. Sometimes, quite honestly, it's like, we don't know how to do it. And we're like, okay, I want to, I get it, it's needful, it's necessary, it's important, I should do it. I was commissioned to do it. God wants me to do it, but I don't know how. So, what we're going to be taking a look at tonight is we see Paul rolling into Athens, uh, 200 miles from where he came from previously in Berea. We're going to be seeing how uh, you know some things that we can glean from Paul's approach as he seeks to engage people um, in the mission of God and in 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 speaking to them about Jesus. And so. Um, it's good for us to be mindful of this stuff. And, and, and it, whether it's the things that we have to overcome, like fear or if we can be better equipped, these are, this is something that we have to recognize that this applies to us. This really does apply to us. As it relates to the Great Commission, it's not for somebody else. If you are a follower of Jesus, the Great Commission applies to you. It really does. Let me ask you a question, and you don't have to answer it out loud. When was the last time you talked to someone about Jesus? Jesus. When was was the last time, let me flip the question around, when was the last time you had the opportunity to talk to someone about Jesus and you decided to, you know, not bother? These are the things that we have to wrestle with. But we have to remember that we've been commissioned to do this. And it's really an obedience issue for us that we have to take advantage of these opportunities. So it all leads to taking the initiative, saying something, and doing something. And tonight, what I want to do, hopefully, is be able to give us a bit of a framework as we glean from some lessons in Paul's life here and his approach in Athens, to give us a bit of a framework about how we can engage people for Jesus, looking at some of these things um, from Paul's example as he's in Athens. So um, he, this is part of his second missionary journey. He has just come from Berea, where um, he had relatively good ministry in Berea, but then some troublemakers came from Thessalonica. And if you remember the story about what happened in Thessalonica, Thessalonica, we we talked about that a few weeks ago. And some troublemakers followed him from Thessalonica to Berea, and they're stirring up trouble, and they're creating havoc. And so some of the the brothers in in Berea say, okay, we need to get you out of here. So they throw Paul on a ship, and that takes him 200 miles south to, to Athens. And uh, he calls for, you know he, he, he asks for his traveling buddies, uh, Silas and Timothy, to, to come along with him, or not to come with him, but to follow him. To, and so he's in Athens waiting for them. And while he's waiting for his buddies to catch up, he apparently explores this impressive city of Athens. It was known for its artistic beauty, uh, seen clearly in its amazing buildings, monuments, uh, statues, temples. And and as he explores the city, his main takeaway is that the city was full of idols. We see that in verse 16. That's his main takeaway. Athens, in a nutshell, it's full of idols. And it wasn't just, when we we read that, that the city was full of idols, it's not just an, an expression, but it's really communicating that it was utterly idolatrous. The city was utterly idolatrous. And it's thought that the number of idols in Athens was actually three times the population Roman writer Petronius asserted that it was easier to find a god than a man in Athens. Just the proliferation and the superabundance idols, of idols in Athens was just sort of off the charts. Greek philosopher and historian um, Xenophon referred to Athens as one great altar and one great sacrifice. So if you, loved, if you loved Athens, idols were definitely your thing. Just like if you love Portland, you're into beards and coffee. It's just kind of, they go together. But um, there was this superabundance, this proliferation, this superfluity, if you could say that, of idols in Athens. And Paul, it, it jumps out at Paul because he was driven by a desire to bring Jesus to people and to bring people to Jesus. And so here he sees this abundance of idols in Athens, and it represents ultimately how far these people were from God. These things that they were living for, these things that they were worshiping, the, 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 the direction of their hearts that had been turned away from the one true God and to these other things. And it's no doubt, uh, you know, it makes sense that this is something that he would notice because when something clashes with the things that are important to us, they tend to stand out. I don't know if anyone here is a hairdresser, but if you are, you notice everybody that has a bad haircut. You can't help yourself. Or it's like you know, the, the grammar Nazis that can't help but you know, correct your Facebook posts and remind you that I comes before E except, except after C and those sorts of things. But here in verse 16, we see that Paul has this reaction, this, he sees the idols and, and that's not jiving with his worldview or his cause or his, his really mission in life, which is to follow God's call and the Spirit's call to bring Jesus to people. And it says there in verse 16 that his spirit was provoked within him. And so he sort of had this emotional reaction, his heart was stirred. was disturbed, Yeah, I was going to say stirred or even disturbed, but I can make up new words. I tend to do that. His heart was stirred within him. And the idols revealed the Athenians' hunger for God, but also testified to their spiritual emptiness. And so his heart was stirred for them. And Paul, obviously, by this reaction, we see that he's not indifferent to what he sees. He's not detached from what he sees. And he feels strongly compelled to do something about it. And so we see that, um, you know, often in a situation like that, and I know in my own life, I've seen this a lot, that sometimes when we come across a culture that is an utter utter and desperate need for Jesus, we don't always respond in the right way. We don't always respond as Paul responded. Sometimes our reaction is to sort of reject that godless culture and reject that godless thing instead of trying to find ways to redeem it. Um, and I've seen that in, in my own experience where, you know, um, especially when I moved to Los Angeles, which was 2009, and there were people in my life, self-righteous people, that were so disgusted that I would move to Los Angeles. Why would you go there? L.A. is disgusting. It's this, it's that, it's fill in the blank, all these things about all the reasons why they would never live in L.A. and how godless it was and Hollywood is going to hell in a handbasket and all of this. And it was really, to be honest, it kind of ticked me off. And I was just like, look, if you care so much about Hollywood and you think it's so bad and you think this city is so gross, why don't you do something about it? Why don't you get off your butt? Why don't you move here and help be a part of the solution and bring in the gospel to Los Angeles? So we have this tendency sometimes. We don't always, we see something so bad and we, we sometimes we just reject it instead of seeking to redeem it. But that is not what Paul did. And so Um, we see here that Paul's heart, the reason why he's seeing it like this is that his heart is aligned with God's heart and his heart is aligned with his commission to be able to reach people with the good news of Jesus Christ. And to whatever degree Paul was bothered by the idolatry he saw, it it didn't turn him off to the point that he turned his back and rejected it and said, you know, I'm out of here and and, uh, this is so disgusting and gross, I'm out. But no, instead of that, and that was not his response. His response when he seeing that the city was f- full of idols, he determined in his heart that he was going to be doing, he would be do- doing something about it. He was going to try to reach people by placing himself in relevant spaces to discuss relevant issues with whomever he could. So as was his custom, the first thing he did was, he, as he discovers the city is like this, he went to the synagogue first. He would always that whenever he would roll into a new city and he sought to bring Jesus to that city, he would always go to the synagogue first. And even in the midst of such an idolatrous city, there was a Jewish community there and there was a synagogue there and he went to the synagogue. We see that in verse 17, to reason with the Jews. And this, is, um, you know, this idea of reasoning is to be patiently persuasive. So he goes to the synagogue to, a, to, a, to reason with the Jewish people there. And... Uh, no doubt there'd be exchanges about the Holy Scriptures and, and um, all of that, and he was just engaging them in, in, in some of these conversations. And no doubt he's speaking to them about Jesus, um, the one that uh, was ultimately their hope, uh, the one who he presented for them as being their hope. Their hope, the one that they were looking for, this Jesus that had already come, that they had ultimately and mostly rejected. And so he's speaking to them about Jesus, I'm sure. And we also see him going to the marketplace. Every day, it says there in in verse 17, he was in the marketplace speaking with those who happened to be there. Now the marketplace, it, it wasn't just, you know, the mall or, you know, something like that. Certainly there were shops there and all of that, but it was so much more than that within this context. And, and, and I, I want to share with you a little bit about what was going on there at the marketplace. So we're not just talking about, you know, a place full of shops, but it was also the center of finance. It was the center of art where political and philo- philosophical ideas were debated. And, and it was so it a was, it was center of so much of the culture there, and, and everyone would hang out there. And so it was accurate to say that it was the cultural center of the city, and it was, uh, keeping in mind the city that we're in here is the it was the, the cultural center of the city, but the city, itself, uh, the city itself, Athens, was culturally at the center of the whole Greco-Roman world at that time. And so ideas, and ideas were generated and shaped there in Athens that really affected people in the way that they thought and the way that they lived. And he encountered some people there, uh, uh, people that were representing two of the most popular schools of philosophical thought, uh, the Epicureans and the Stoics, and, and some of them conversed with them. We see that in verse 18. So some of these, con- uh, some of these philosophers conversed with them. So real, real conversations are actually taking place, and he must have been you know, very engaging for this to be able to, to happen in, in, in the way that he went about it. Other people called him a babbler. Now literally babbler, when we when we understand the, the use of this word and the etymology of this word, it literally means to be a seed, a seed picker. Sort of like, like a bird that goes around picking up seeds here and there. And so they use this as sort of as, a, as an insulting and uh, a sarcastic and a derogatory way to describe people that would hang out in the marketplace where all these exchanges of ideas were happening and they would pick up bits and pieces here and there, and then they would spit them out indiscriminately, not always even knowing what they were talking about. And so they're, they're calling him, they're sort of mocking him, and they're, they're calling him a babbler. And despite this criticism, um, the way that he engages them still leads to more opportunity, and they showed genuine interest and wanted to know more. And that doesn't mean necessarily that they believed in Jesus and they were buying everything that he was saying, um, but we see here that there was at least a, a genuine interest in continuing on with these conversations. Now, notice that their, that their openness was not a result of Paul being cryptic in his communication or being a little guarded or shielded in what he was saying. The text reveals here that he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection, So, he wasn't sort of hiding his beliefs. He was very upfront about it, yet, still, there is this openness. We don't always experience that. Sometimes, when we bring up Jesus and things like that, sometimes that's the end of the conversation. But we see here that there is an openness here, even despite the fact that he's being very upfront about his beliefs. And they were intrigued and they invited him to address a larger gathering at the Areopagus. And Um, And it was also, that area was also known as Mars Hill, and this is where philosophers met to dialogue and debate various things. And uh, we're going to, next week, we're going to be able to see a little bit more about what that looks like and how he presented and laid out the gospel of Jesus Christ there at the Areopagus, the Mars Hill there. And so I'm going to sort of tease you with that, but that's okay, because you're all going to be here next week, right? But um, despite the fact that we're not really going to get into all that he discussed at Mars Hill there, what I want to do is highlight some of the things that we can glean from what we've already seen, things that we can glean from Paul's approach that we can incorporate into reaching our own context here in LA. The first thing that we see Paul doing that we can glean from and that we can learn, that we can put into practice is that we have to see the city. We have to ask questions like, what is represented in this city? What can be observed? What are we looking at? What are the so-called idols of the city? What makes the city tick? What do the people here live for? What do they love? Another way of looking at it is, what do they hate? Because that's the flip side of seeing what matters to people. And so that's what we have to do. We have to see the city. And Paul saw the idols in Athens, and that that observation is what? was the catalyst for his heart being stirred for them. And so we, we think about a context like Los Angeles. What is L.A.'s deal? What does L.A. worship in the place of God? What does L.A. live for? Some obvious things like success, wealth, status, comfort, satisfaction and fulfillment, pleasure, sometimes relationships. And see, the thing is, and, the, and these, these can be all modern day examples of idolatry. These are things that have become ultimate things that we are living for. And they don't always have to be negative things. Sometimes they can actually be good things that have gotten to the place in our heart where we, where we regard them in distorted ways and have made them ultimate things, therefore making them idols in our hearts. So we have to see the city. Second, we have to know the people. If we're going to reach the city, we've got to see the people, and we have to know the people. So what I'm talking about here is understanding who the people are. Who are the people that live here? What are the predominant thoughts about religion and spirituality? What are the possible entry points to engage in conversations? Are the people as wide open to discussion as these philosophers were there in Athens, or not so much? Think about the way that uh, just the context would demand a difference in the way that you engaged people in the Bible Belt or in Los Angeles or San Francisco. The conversations just go differently, right? The power of the gospel is the same, and Jesus wants to save people in the Bible Belt who think they know Jesus, and he wants to save people in Los Angeles and San Francisco who may hate Jesus. I knew a pastor once, um, and he uh, was in Texas, and I remember him explaining to me, and I never forgot this. He was explaining to me that his, their entire drive as a church is to reach out to um, church people and publicly engage in conversations with people that did identify as being Christians and churchgoers, but because they lived in this context of the Bible Belt. There wasn't always a lot of understanding of the gospel and the means by which we are saved. And a lot of people put their faith and their trust in being a good person, a good moral person, an upright person. So he's like, man, it's not so much the so-called pagans that we're trying to reach. It's the church people that we're trying to reach. And so that's why we need to know the people. Who are they? How, do we, how, how can we have conversations with them? And in our own lives, it's good for us to look around and see the people that God has already placed in our lives. Because we sometimes, as it relates to reaching people for Jesus, we sort of have this separation at times, like who are the strangers that I don't know, that whose, cra- whose paths I will cross at some point, maybe today, that I'll have the opportunity to share the gospel with. But sometimes the people that God wants to share him with are people that he has already placed in our lives. So sometimes we have to sort of sit back and just think, who's already in my life? Who, who do I already know? Would it be friends, maybe family, maybe coworkers, that don't know Jesus, And I have an ability, because I know Jesus, I have the opportunity and the ability to share with them about the love of Jesus Christ. And so that's one thing we have to do is sort of know the people and even recognizing the people that are already in our lives. If we look at Paul, he was a Jewish person himself, and he knew that there was a a Jewish community there in Athens. When he engaged the marketplace, he understood the role of the marketplace as being the cultural center of the city, and so he went there. He knew what the philosophers were all about. He knew that he was going to be able to engage in a conversation with them, so no no doubt that is part of how that conversation started and how he conducted himself in that conversation where there would have been an, an expectation of an exchange of ideas, and no doubt he had to be patient and bite his tongue maybe, to wait for his opportunity to talk and to go back and forth, but he he, he knew how the whole system worked. And so no doubt it shaped his approach as he sought to engage these philosophers in their exchange of ideas. And so everyone is different. We have to just recognize that everyone is different and so we have to consider the best ways in order to connect with people. So we have to see the city, we have to know the people, and for goodness sake, we have to do something. It's, it's, It's good to see the city. It's good to know people. Because now we can fill out the questionnaire perfectly about what LA is all about and how to engage people and all of that. But it doesn't do a lick of good if we're not gonna do anything about it. We have to do something. And again, Christians always, I don't wanna overgeneralize, but we often struggle with this separation that we create between us and our ultimate calling. And by ultimate calling, what I'm talking about is this commission that we were given. I don't understand how we, and I include this in myself, how we have sort of drifted from what he commissioned us to do. It's the great commission. And this applies to everyone that puts their faith in Jesus Christ. And we've sort of treated being a Christian and being a part of a church as being just part of the experience of being a part of this subculture that we call the church world, or being a Christian. But we, I, most people, we don't walk around seeing people through the lens of the great commission and recognizing that people are dying without Jesus. Let me just pause right there and just say for a second that I, I hope you are challenged by that. I hope your heart is stirred up by that. But know this, I'm not speaking to you as one who's got it all figured out in prepping and in going over this passage this week, I was very challenged by some of this and just recognizing the disparity in my own life between our calling to be missionally engaged in the world and the lack of some of that that I see in my life. But this is ultimately what God is calling us to do because when we don't engage on God's uh, mission and receive the great commission and we sort of distance ourselves from that and sort of set it back. It could be a sin for us. It could be a sin for us to not reach people because it becomes a sin of omission because we're not following through with what God has called us to do. And so this is, and this even goes back to what I opened with in talking about this attitude that we have that somebody else will do it. And here's the thing. Whether someone later on down the road comes to faith or not, or let's just say they do come to faith. That in no way makes it okay for us not to engage people or to miss opportunities. God's called us to engage, and that's the thing. As it relates to all this, seeing the city, knowing, the, knowing, the, uh, see, uh, seeing the city, uh, knowing the people, and doing something about it. It's not like the, the the job and the role and responsibility of saving people is ours. We have the responsibility to be obedient to the Great Commission but it's God who ultimately draws people to himself, and he's, he's the one that saves people. So as we are seeing the city, knowing the city, and doing something about it, we might be trying to follow through with some of these principles, and maybe we're not encountering people who are coming to know Jesus. I'm talking to all these people. I'm doing my best. I'm trying to be really engaged, really focused and of what God's calling me to do. And I'm trying to seek out opportunities to share the gospel with people. And no one's coming to know Jesus. No one's placing their faith in Jesus. If you, if, if that's you, if you're in that spot right now, let me just encourage you. You are doing what you're supposed to do. Your job is not to save people. Our job is to be missionally engaged as ambassadors of Jesus Christ. I don't think there's a difference Um or even lessons to be learned necessarily between uh, when when we see Paul roll into certain cities, and some cities, a lot of people got saved, and other cities, not a lot of people got saved. Unless Paul got in the way and did something to disrupt his witness or something like that, I don't think um, it's really a matter of of what he did wrong. Ultimately, the job of saving is God's but we do need to be missionally engaged. We need to be, need to be active in this and you know, not sort of let, have that attitude that, that we're just gonna let somebody else do it. We can't have that mindset. We need to seek out opportunities. And then again, we see you know, that's what Paul was doing in the synagogue, right? He knew that people were gonna be talking about the scriptures and discussing God. He, he wanted to have that conversation. He engaged in that. That's also why he went to the cultural center of the city. And here's the reality of it, is that if we, if we are not seeking to, to make an effort in any, in any way, if we don't make an effort at all, we're not gonna be able to make a difference. It's just simple math. If we don't make any effort at all, we're not gonna be able to make a difference. So even as a church to, to help create some opportunities for this, we have, as most of you know, our neighborhood dinners. And the point of these neighborhood dinners is just to create these relaxed social environments where people can just hang out and have a meal together. That's, that all, that's all it's really about. And these are contexts where people can connect and build relationships. And um, we can't trust our neighborhood dinners to do all the work of evangelism for us. That's not the point. We've got to do that we have to be reaching people. But as a church, we thought, okay, how can we create opportunities and create spaces so that as people are missionally engaged, there's something that they can actually invite people back into. I think we have to be careful that we don't um, look to the church, the leadership of the church, the church programs to do all the reaching and evangelism and reaching and engaging and all that for us. We have to recognize that that's, that's our job. That's what we do. But here's something that we do as a church to try to create these regular rhythms where where people can be involved in that. And, you know, people in LA are interesting. They're kind of funny. They have this love-hate relationship with community, right? On one hand, they're like, leave me alone. I want to be totally independent and don't bug me and, you know, get out of my space. But on the other hand, everyone is just freaked out and is desperate to be known and is desperate to be loved. So there's like this weird kind of like... facade and this wall that everyone puts up. But yet we, when, we, when we drill a little bit deeper, we see that people are desperate to be known and desperate to be loved. And so we have these opportunities to, to invite people in. And It's just one opportunity. Uh, I don't think the way that we missionally engage in the city is defined by what we do within our neighborhood dinners, but it certainly creates an opportunity for us. And so another thing we have to think about is how can we create context? There's times where it can be helpful to create context. So some examples of that is, is about you know, being open-minded as we engage with people, being open, uh, not being open-minded, but being open about um, where we spend our Sunday afternoons. What'd you do last night? Where were you? Oh, I was at church. Not, oh, I was busy. I don't know, I was doing this thing. <laughs> or maybe you were at someone for lunch today. It's like, where are you going later? Oh, I'm, I'm just going to this place over there in Santa Monica. You know, what if we just created the context and we're very upfront and very open about where we're doing the role that church has in our life, this church community that we're a part of, the fact that we have a relationship with Jesus, sometimes just being open up front and not shying away from being, of just like talking about what's going on in our real lives as it relates to our relationship with God or the church community that we're a part of can create context for more gospel, uh, gospel um, relationships and gospel conversations. But maybe it's also telling a friend who's going through a difficult time that you'll be praying for them. What? You'll be praying for me? Yeah, like that sounds like a really difficult thing that you're going through. And you know, I, I've been through some difficult things and what got me through that is being focused on, you know, the hope that I have in Jesus and somebody praying for you that he comforts you and he encourages you. Oh, okay. And who knows how that conversation will go or how it might blow up in your face, but so what, right? Who cares? And, and who knows what, how that will turn into a conversation later on. Sometimes when we think about having conversations and doing something and engaging people this way, we expect it all to happen in that one conversation. Okay, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to Sort of express to them that I'm a, a follower of Jesus Christ, and I'm explaining to them their need for salvation. They're going to be super curious, and they're going to ask me all these questions. And I'm going to lay it all out because I memorize these these verses in order that I could share one at a time. And I'm just going to lay it all out. The light bulb's going to come on in their head, and they're going to you know drop to their knees and they're going to say the sinner's prayer, whatever that is. And you know they're going to get their ticket to heaven. And sometimes we have that mindset that it's all kind of together, but sometimes. It's a series of conversations. Sometimes it's a series of interactions. And sometimes it's a series of of sort of connecting with people where it's like, you know, where the other person's like, man, hey, I want to, I don't really get this, but I want to thank you for praying for me because I remember that thing you said that you were going to pray for me for? Like, I don't know, like, I feel like that kind of worked. Oh, cool, great. Well, is there anything else I can pray for you for? Or however that might go. I remember um, when I was a new Christian, um, I had a lot of unsafe friends, as most new Christians do, and um, I was in a situation where I, the friends that I was with, we were they wanted to do something that I just was no longer comfortable with. And so I sort of drew a line in the sand. I'm like, love you guys, and I'll do this, but I won't do that, and, and I'm just going to hang out at home. And the whole thing blew up in my face, and, and when they, they were all mad at me, and um, when they left, I thought, how does this work? Because I'm trying to be a good witness, yet they're pissed off at me now because I follow Jesus. How does this work? They're supposed to be super curious. They're supposed to want to know more about my relationship with Jesus, and I'm supposed to draw them in, not make them upset. And I was wrestling with that all night. And then the next morning, when everyone had sobered up, three of my friends came to me separately, and they said, hey, um, about last night, really sorry about that, I don't get this whole Jesus kick that you're on now, uh, but I respect that you're on a Jesus kick, and I respect your beliefs, and um, I'm sorry for being a jerk about it last night, but I actually respect you more now that you were living according to your beliefs. That created more conversations. And then over time, a bunch of my friends started going to church with me. They would engage with me around scripture, and they would ask questions about the Bible, and it was amazing. But in the way that we're having these conversations, and the, the, the ways that we seek to provide it and create context, I'm not talking about forcing it. I'm not talking about being weird and manipulative. I'm not talking about being sleazy in any way. But we, we should seek out opportunities to create context and share the gospel with people. Because here's the thing. If God is really a part of our lives, we'll have opportunity to talk to others about that. Because God is doing stuff in our lives and shaping our lives, it's part of our life very much. So as God is active in our lives, there's gonna be ways that we can share that and just talk about our lives with other people. Not to be, not to be pushy, not to, have, um, you know, not to have this massive agenda of how this conversation's about to go, but just by talking about what's going on in our lives with our friends and the people that we have relationships with, it can create context for more conversations. And so, part of that, of, of part of doing something, is 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 that is the conversations. If we're going to do something, we also got to say something. We have to have the conversation, and we should not expect our actions to all the, to do all the talking for us. We can't expect our actions to do all the talking for us, uh, you know, because if we if we, you know, if we if we try to be a moral and an ethical person at work. And we just sit back and we, we try to be the most you know, amazing person. And we sort of sit back and are just waiting for people to, to knock down our door saying, tell me about why you're so different. I've noticed you're not like everybody else. What's different about you? You probably are a Christian, aren't you? <laughs> that might happen. And our, our witness and our actions is important. But you know what? I think sometimes we play it out that way. You know, I don't need, I don't need to talk. I'm not, I'm not going to push it. I'm just gonna be an ethical person. I'm gonna be honest. I'm gonna treat people kindly. I'm gonna treat people the way I would wanna be treated. I'm gonna be a good person. And I'm, I'm hoping that you know at some point people warm up to the idea that there's something that's informing that behavior. And I hope that they ask. Because if they ask, they've made the first move and I don't have to now and I'm happy to have that conversation. I think sometimes we fall back on that. And what it does, it just renders us, we, it, we just sideline ourselves. We, 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 don't, we aren't willing to make the first move. We aren't, we aren't ready to initiate. We're waiting for someone else to initiate. But the majority of the time, that's not going to happen. majority of the time, that's not going to happen. That's just not how it works. Our words and our actions go best together, but should not be in place of one another, as it relates to the gospel. They go best together and should not be in place of one another. Because you don't want to preach your face off either and then live like hell, Right? They've got to be in sync, and they've got to go together, not in place of one another. You may have heard a quote attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, and I'm sure a lot of you know where I'm going with this. Preach the gospel, and when necessary, use words. Who's heard of that before? Right, We all have. Preach the gospel, and when necessary, use words. So profound, so amazing, very thought-provoking. Problem is, it's a load of bull. <laughs> not not just because it's bad theology, which it is bad theology, but he also didn't say it. He didn't say it. And I, it's been passed on through times so and we post it on Twitter and all that kind of stuff. And everyone is familiar with this phrase, but it, it's, not, it's not a good thing. Actions do matter and they are part of our witness. But we want to be able to share with a coworker, with a friend, with a family member, about the truths of the gospel, and also have them see it in our lives. But the Bible calls us to preach. The Bible says, how will they hear unless there's a preacher? Actions, we should live out our faith. It's a very important thing. It's part of our discipleship approach. It's like not gaining knowledge. The way to be a good Christian is not to learn more about God. It's not how we grow as a Christian either. A part of our Christian experience is growing into a follower of Jesus Christ, a follower of Jesus, someone who lives like Jesus. So we're seeking to apply these things to our lives, absolutely. But as it relates to the mission of God, if we just, if we just decide to act real good, you know, and act like Christians, whatever that means for us, and never share the gospel, we are failing in our commission, and we won't do a good job at reaching people. And it's funny because as Christians, we can try so hard to avoid talking about Jesus we really can when you think about it. We do all this stuff to, to avoid having the conversations. And that's why I'm so amazed by people. And there, there does seem to be a common thread. It's been interesting. Um, people who have been saved by Jesus and the gospel has rocked their lives so much that it's like they are fearless. And it's so amazing to see. And I love it when I see that. And a lot of times they're extroverts as well, and that's part of it. And so then you're an introvert, you're like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, that's a hard thing for me to do. It's, yeah, because it's hard for you to have a conversation, period. And and that's okay, because I'm that guy too. And that is a problem in my life. My own introversion gets in the way of gospel proclamation all the time. So I don't say that to mock introverts. I'm just saying as an introvert, that's something we need to get over. Because God's commissioned us, not just the extroverts, to reach people with the message of Jesus we need to take advantage of, advantage of the opportunities that he provides in our lives to be able to share Jesus with people. But if we're gonna do that, um, you know, we can't shy away, we can't shrink back. But you know what else? Can we not be obnoxious about it? We don't need to be obnoxious about it. It doesn't mean we have to be rude. It doesn't mean we have to be inconsiderate. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that we have to be, be forceful. And if we think that we have to choose between silence and being obnoxious, we're missing something. There's a way to do it. We can be respectful even when we're challenging and uh, when we're challenging dominant cultural ideas and even when we disagree with people, there's a way to be respectful and, and, and there's a way to, to talk to people in such a way that even though there may be disagreement, there's still mutual respect there. And the, how we, we showed love uh, and respect to people, it, 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 the fact that we would respect them and love them in spite of our differences is a huge part of our witness to them. Because that, that's a big, major component of it too, right? Our mission to others should be motivated by our love for them and our obedience to Christ. Our mission to others should be motivated by our love for them and obedience to Christ. Because I said, if we're not reaching people, it can become a sinful thing. And it's certainly unloving. Because we have the opportunity to share the gospel with them. And we, we pull back maybe because of our own comfort, maybe because of our own fear, maybe because of our own whatever, fill in the blank. The Bible says that the greatest commandment is to love God and the second is to love others. That's what drives our mission. That's what motivates us to reach people and to share Jesus with them, love for them. And we can show genuine interest in people. That's one of the ways that we could show interest in them. In Los Angeles, we show genuine interest in people when they are good for us somehow, right? This person has the keys that can unlock the door of my career, and so I'm gonna love them and blow kisses at them and be their best buddy because what I can get for them. And you know how disarming it is when you love someone with no strings attached and you just love them just because? Even as it relates to our witness, And as we're seeking to love people and show genuine interest in them and all of that, you know, we we talk about loving people, but we we don't have to have strings attached. We don't have to have conditions on that. Even as we're seeking to reach people, whether it be um, ways that we engage them in conversations, ways that we serve them, even when we invite them to a neighborhood dinner, that sort of thing. You know what? It's totally okay if we invite someone to a neighborhood dinner and they come and they they never place their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, it will be sad if they do that, obviously, if they never place their faith, but I mean, it's okay from the perspective of if we are loving them, and that's their choice to not receive Christ, that's their decision, but we don't love them just to get them to join our church, right? We love them because they're people made in the image of God. They're people that fall under the category of the second greatest commandment, which is to love others. And so, we should just love people because we're told to. It's part of what God is calling us to. And again, we can love people that we're disagreeing with. And, and even in that is is a great part of our witness because in this world where it's impossible for us to have the conversation anymore, right? We've completely lost the ability to have a conversation, right? But when we are loving people and respectful with them and are engaging in conversations with people that even we disagree with, It's a massive, especially these days. It could be a huge witness opportunity. Like, we're just completely incapable of having a conversation. Oh, I voted for Hillary. That means you're a baby killer. Oh, I voted for Trump. That means you're a racist. I mean, it's just the end of the conversation, right? But for us to be able to thoughtfully engage with people that even when we don't see eye to eye on various issues, it's like, oh, wow, like, we're on separate sides of this issue, but you're still here. You're still having a conversation with me. And it's one of the ways that we can show love for people. We don't want to just turn a blind eye and drive by. When we see people that don't know Jesus, we want to be able to share Jesus with people. We want to bring bring them and help them to see that they can have a relationship with Jesus, that he loves them and he wants to bring meaning and purpose into their life because he loves them, because they were made in his image and created to know him. The Bible says that sin entered the world through our first parents, our original parents, Adam and Eve, when they believed the the lies of the devil instead of the truth of God and they rebelled against God and God wanted to bless them and and he wanted to have a relationship with them in perfect harmony, but the devil sought to disrupt that. And as descendants of Adam and Eve, we are all sinners we're all messed up. We're all in need of Jesus. We're all people who have idols in our lives where we live for these other things. And we don't allow God to be in his rightful place in our lives. And we, we live for these other things. And when we, when we come face to face with the reality of what Jesus did for us, where he offers us his righteousness in exchange for our sin, because he loved us so much to die on a cross for us and took the punishment for our sins upon himself, the way to respond to that is through repentance and faith. The way we respond Aim, is through repentance and faith, and that means to turn from our sin and, and put our hope in him as our savior. This is the message that we have for the world. If you're not, uh, it, well, let me say, if you are a Christian, I hope that that, that you're thinking about how you can reach people. I hope you're stirred up and um, charged up about this commission that God has given us and our duty and our responsibility as ambassadors of Jesus Christ to share the love of Jesus Christ with people. If you're not a Christian, if you, if you consider yourself far from God, uh, I, I want you to know that we love you and I want you to know that Jesus loves you. And he, he loves you so much that the Bible says that while we were still enemies, in our hearts with God, he came into this world to die on a cross for our sins because it was, it was our sins that separated us from him. And he came into this world to die on a cross for our sins so our sins could be done away with because justice was leveled out and he bore the brunt of that. And so if you're here and you're like, what is all this mission stuff? What is this reaching people with the gospel stuff? It's essentially that Jesus came into this world to give us life at great cost to him and at no cost to us and all we have to do is put our faith in him. This is the message that we have for the world, and church, this is the message we must bring to the world. We gotta bring it to the world. Don't make them ask for it. Bring it to them. Love them enough to bring it to them so that they can know Jesus and know how much he loves them. I hope that tonight we consider this stuff and we really take it to heart, and we sort of reorient ourselves and our hearts around what God is ultimately calling us to. And may we, as God's people, obediently take these things to heart, this commission that we've been given to participate in God's mission for the good of the world and God's glory. Let's pray.